Hello, and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with the entire crew. Everybody's here. Wayne, Katya, Kata, Monica. How's it going, guys? Uh, so I was not sure who the, like, existential crisis noise was coming from. Yeah, that, that, that was meant to be. I was like, this could be literally any of us. That was meant to be a cheer. So yeah, was, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> It threw me for a second. I'm like, oh, wait, was it? Did Gain screw up? Okay. <laughs> uh, welcome back. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me podcast time travel. Welcome to the first show of the year. It's 2022. How was New Year's, everybody? Oh, well. <laughs> it was. I, uh, no. yeah that's about right well i can make some i can make some pretty accurate guesstimates based on the fact that oregon specifically portland is currently experiencing one of its annual weather crises which is more than a quarter of an inch of snow is on the ground oh no which means we're all collectively hyperventilating a little bit even though i mean to be fair the problem isn't the snow. The problem is that the snow melts during the day because it's not actually cold enough, and then it becomes black ice overnight. Right, yeah. So, yeah. like, it and is reasonable is to be yeah. very cautious about that, especially we are in a state that has, I think in the entire Pacific Northwest, there are, like, seven snow plows, and we don't salt out here. It is, as we record this, it is 8.30 in the evening in Pittsburgh on December 28th, and it is 54 degrees outside. which is raining. Which is, <laughs> which is... I mean, it's unseasonably warm. It, it's yeah. super like it should be. It should be a winter wonderland outside. And that's been for days. But it's been yeah. We're in like a heat wave. So well, I realize I'm in North Carolina, but if the weather report is accurate and I time travel to New Year's Day, it's like 75 outside, and like <laughs> we don't get snow every Christmas to New Year's, but there's usually a chance. I told my like family when they were visiting, like, be prepared. You might see some snow like three three months ago, and then my mother was like, it's 70 hannah yeah monica you live in la do you even understand this conversation (laughs) (laughs) i know you're from michigan i grew up in the midwest (laughs) so i i have a memory of snow i'm actually currently on a a ski trip despite the fact that i don't ski let's let's rephrase that as i am with people who are on a ski trip (laughs) i'm surrounded by snow and i now remember what snow is and i've experienced it for long enough to be like that was cute moving on (laughs) Never again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, the first show of 2022, and we didn't get a chance to do our year end show in 2021, you know, back last year when it was still 2021 through the magic of podcast time travel. So that's today. And I guess we should explain this for people who have not heard one of our year end shows before. And for Monica, this is your first one. But for the benefit of people who have not heard this before, the way we do our, our year end review shows is we don't really do a best of list. You know, lots of other podcasts have those and and we don't have best of. What we have are things you missed. And how did we even come up with this? I don't even remember. Do you guys yeah. remember? I, mean, I think it was literally there were like some niche funky things that like, oh, we just never did got to talk about this. Yeah. That didn't fit into a show that yeah. we were like, we want to talk about it. I think also like, to me, this is also the show where we just talk about stuff we enjoy that we don't necessarily have like deep intellectual thoughts <laughs> about. Critical analysis. <laughs> yeah. Like I think like in October, Wayne texted us and was like, let's do this. Like two years ago. <laughs> It's like it's how every show happens. It's just sort yeah, of like, I'll, I have an idea. Yeah, it's like, I'll yeah, take credit cool. for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> you can give the credit and or the blame. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of my favorite shows of the year, though, because this is so this isn't necessarily the best things of 2021, though many of them might count that way. A lot of these are going to be things that 
that one of us, perhaps several of us, particularly enjoyed um, media that we watched or read or listened to or whatever that we experienced and we really enjoyed, but not necessarily, you know, we have a lot of shows devoted to like Marvel movies and stuff. So we're not really going to talk about that. This is going to be things that things that didn't come up. Yeah, we talked about that some in our, our group chat kind of thing of what qualifies, because I certainly yeah. there's stuff I discover every year that didn't come out that year, but it was new right. to me. Mm-hmm. I so, got some of that. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of a mine, not, mine not only, all that. I I didn't miss this in 2021, but I missed it in the 30 previous years it existed. So right, <laughs> so, right. so I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, and I look forward to this every year because mm-hmm. this is the show that brought into my life Man versus Bear. I knew yeah, that you were yeah, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. Man versus Bear. Yes. yes, and and like I will forever be tracing that dragon from here on out. Like I just want something else. <laughs> 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 You're just, welcome yeah yes so monica do you understand the, the concept yes. <laughs> okay this is the very loosely defined concept yes <laughs> which changes every year <laughs> yes. you're the new person what's the first thing that we miss that we need to hear about oh no pressure right? right you know i probably put a little too much thought into my list but, <laughs> but the thing that i decided that i wanted to talk about the most was the framing britney spears documentary oh and my God. the end mm. of Spears's conservatorship because i don't feel like that's something that ever came up in conversation in, in any of like our, our offhanded this might be slightly related to something else conversation yeah. that was a pretty big deal for one because the documentary like really pushed Britney Spears's conservatorship like into public awareness in a way that like it sort of existed in like periphery like podcasts or like big super fan circles but it wasn't something that everyone was talking about and the fact that it sort of did really push the legal discussion forward it pushed the actual like legal proceedings forward and that she does end this year a free woman after literally 13 years under a conservatorship like I feel like it's it's a big deal I feel like it brought up conversations of conservatorship in general outside of just celebrity circumstance and following Britney on social media I feel like it's really nice and really refreshing to see that she's actually gotten her voice back and she's allowed to speak freely about whatever she wants and how that's such a such a small thing but it's such a big thing at the same time that like she's experiencing having her own money for the first time she's experiencing being allowed to write her own Mm -hmm. fucking instagram captions for the first time and like i I don't know for me that that was a piece of very hopeful news in a very kind of sad otherwise depressing year in which a lot of other people had discussions about feeling like they were losing pieces of freedom or autonomy so to see someone who is being really positive and is gaining all of that back and is really able to appreciate all of the small moments, I feel like is a lesson that everyone else could be learning from. Here, here. Yes. <laughs> and also, I can't believe we didn't talk about it. I was a guest on Cosmic Geppetto where we did like a whole hour and a half just like analyzing it. And I guess it just never occurred to me that, oh, we should just do one on our show too. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm a longtime Britney fan. And so I was already following her on Instagram. And before the documentary came out, there was a point, it might have been at the end of 2020, but definitely early in 2021, certainly, there's a point where she just very, very clearly gets troublingly sad on Instagram and scary yeah. and downright, like people were worried about, is she okay? Is she 
she's suicidal. It was just dreary and bad. And then like, as you started following it and seeing that she stopped hiding how unhappy she was. And then the free Britney movement starts and like the, the documentary comes out and it starts becoming more and more clear. Like I knew she was under the conservatorship, but the extent to, you know, two years ago, I just thought, wow, it's kind of weird that, you know, this grown woman has her father managing her money. And then like fast forward a year and it's like, it's extremely weird that this grown woman has her father handling her reproductive rights. Like it becomes creepy and weird. And I I think it was also important because it gave, I think a lot of people, like it was more than just like the specific case of Britney Spears. I think it gave Mm -hmm. a lot of people insight into the actual consequences of a conservatorship Mm -hmm. because like, I think definitely like I follow a few like disability rights activists on social media and they were talking about like, I've experienced this because of my disability. Although it obviously looks very different because like the celebrity adds a different, you know, a different layer to that experience. But Mm -hmm. I think the idea that especially because she is a celebrity, we all kind of like either watched her grow up in the public eye or grew up at the same time. So Monica, you watched the documentary. I've not watched it. I just, again, I follow her Instagram updates every day and I continue to. And oh my God, when when the conservatorship ended, she just becomes so ridiculously happy. I mean, there were a lot of like, I'm going to call them like copycat documentaries that I I didn't feel like added to the conversation. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm a little bit frustrated with the documentary genre in general recently because it it seems a lot more like it's blurring the lines between reality TV and documentary in terms of not always telling a story, but being more interested in expanding a tabloid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the first documentary didn't feel like that. It it obviously Brittany herself did say that she watched it and she had some things that she disagreed with about the documentary. But at the same time, this was a documentary that was endorsed by the New York Times. Like, and so Mm -hmm. putting that stamp on it is saying that like, this is not meant to be tabloid journalism. This is meant to be part of a larger like human rights conversation as it comes to like larger discussions of elder abuse, conservatorship abuse, mental health care. Awesome. Anybody else have any documentaries? Actually, it's funny because I, it's a documentary. I wasn't thinking of it in that way. I was just thinking broader movie category. Summer of Soul. Yes. (laughs) I have not watched it. It's it's actually in my queue. It is so good. So, so here's the backstory. In 1969, the year of Woodstock, a similar music festival took place in Harlem, not over Mm -hmm. a weekend, but over the course of the entire summer. Yes. And some of the biggest R&B and soul acts in the country played in a park in Harlem and it was filmed. There are uh, hundreds of hours of film of this this done. The, the guy, the filmmaker shopped it around to get a movie made like the Woodstock movie. Nobody was interested in it because, you know, black people. And by nobody, you mean 50 years ago. Yeah, right, right. Yes. In, yes. It ended up in his basement, sat there for 50 years until somebody gave it to Questlove. Questlove watched all of it and turned it into an amazing documentary. First of all, just as a music fan, just sitting and watching performances of 18-year-old Stevie Wonder on playing drums, Sly and the Family Stone, Fifth Dimension, just amazing, amazing performances by these classic acts. So just as a music fan, beautiful. But Questlove was, was smart because it is a documentary about that event. It's about that time, but it also reflects our current era and our times. They're interviewing people on the street about, it's 1969, Man on the Moon. And they're talking about, well, yeah, that that's great. No, it'd be nice if some of that money came to our neighborhood. You know, and I'm sitting in a theater mm-hmm. while Elon Musk is flying his penis into space watching <laughs> watching this movie. I guess. So, so it, it 
reflected a lot of it's it was 50 years ago and what fascinates me i'm a music fan i watch documentaries i read biographies i knew nothing about this like, mm. people who participate in this it was like this forgotten thing that took place and it was enormous i mean you, the, over the course of the entire summer, probably as many people went to these concerts as were at Woodstock, just not all at once. Right. It, it should have been this tremendous cultural musical event. And it was just forgotten. People just, for, you know, some scenes, Marilyn McCoon, Billy Davis Jr., who were in uh, what Fifth Dimension. They performed there. There's new video that, that Questlove shot of them watching the footage of them performing, which they had never seen. Oh, they, wow. they had never seen it. They had never seen it. That's awesome. That was just an amazing sequence to watch. So, yeah, just as a music fan, watch this movie just for the, the performances. There's a playlist on Spotify that someone put together of all the artists, everything that was played that summer. It, it's the studio versions of this stuff, but it's just, it's just a great playlist. And it's available on Hulu. Um, yeah, yeah. That out. And you should check our show notes for this episode in particular because we link to them yeah. where, wherever you can get them. So, yeah, Summer yeah. of Solo, it's, it's on Hulu and it's in my, yeah, it, it's it, in it, my watch list. I just haven't watched it yet one of my favorite movie experiences of the year so yeah just and i just came out of it just singing and feeling good and everybody in the place was feeling like that it's just that that sense of that communal sense that happens when you're part of a music event and even though this was 50 years ago it really conveys that excitement and you're mm -hmm. interviewing the bands interviewing people in the crowds Sly and the family stone come out and you know they're, they're talking to people in the crowd they're like we're sitting there watching this and like there's this white boy on drums what's up with that <laughs> 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 and you know just is awesome just so good this is amazing did, wait, did they interview sly today or did, uh, no 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 meryl McCoo and billy davis were two of the only of the performers we no, I take that back. I only watched the once. Uh, we did see Gladys Knight interviewed. There were a few others. There is this performance of Mahalia Jackson singing with Mavis Staples. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, oh. and and, and you know, at this point, Mavis was you know, a a younger artist. She you know, idolized Mahalia Jackson, and Mahalia, if if I'm remembering this right, she wasn't feeling well and was afraid she couldn't pull it off and asked Mavis to join her to bolster her voice. The two of them singing together was just magic, just mm. absolutely magic. So, and there is a clip of that on YouTube, but yeah, but watch the whole movie. Hmm. Yep. So. I, I definitely am checking, checking that out. I mean, I'm, we should, yeah, if you've never seen the original Woodstock documentary, it's brilliant, but they, my understanding is everyone paid attention to that one and ignored this one because you know racism and yeah, that's, why. And that's, that's kind of essentially <laughs> and, what it was yeah yeah and and quest love came into the footage and just decided nope i'm fixing it and from what i'm hearing it's on the short list for best doc for the oscars like pretty much everybody is talking yeah, about it, 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 so. should it should be yeah, yeah it should be i'll pick one of my favorite movies of the year now and again short list for the oscars for best picture tick tick boom uh, yeah. tick tick boom directed by lin-manuel miranda starring andrew garfield in a Role where he is not Peter Parker, Spider Man, and poor Andrew Garfield. Tick Tick Boom has has two amazing things about it. The first is that Andrew Garfield has it, it's an Oscar winning performance. He's probably going to get nominated for this, but he's had to deal with trying to promote this film with people asking him about Spider Man for the last eight months. Poor dude. And <laughs> you owe it to if you're a fan of comic book movies and you have enjoyed watching Andrew Garfield and his slow descent into madness in interviews, <laughs> like. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> like as as people keep asking him about Spider-Man movies for the last eight months, you owe it to him to just give him a shot at watching this movie. Also, Lin-Manuel Miranda doing, you know, his thing as a director in one of the several movies that he that he's put out this year. But it is so good. And I, like Monica, I think this is another one that's also on your list of just it, oh, it is yeah. one of the best movies that I saw this year. It is phenomenal. And, you know, yes, I realize that we are in a pandemic, so you might not be able to get out to see the movie theater. Don't worry. Tick, tick, boom is available for you on Netflix. So good. Please go see it. It is the true story of blanking on the guy's name. Jonathan Larson. Yeah. Okay. He is most famous for writing and directing Rent, but he wrote and directed this play, which is a play about his life story as he tried to get produced a separate play that failed right before this. So it is this weird meta thing. So this guy who works his ass off trying to get this thing to Broadway and it utterly fails. And then it inspires him to write a play about failing to get a play on Broadway. That's this play. Lin-Manuel Miranda goes off and makes a movie of that play. It's called Tick, Tick, Boom. And then after Tick, Tick, Boom, he gets a little bit of a career and then he gets to make Rent and Rent, one of my favorite musicals, Rent is amazing. Well, he famously dies of like a like a brain aneurysm the night before Rent opens. So he never got to actually see all of his work pay off. So it's really, really good. And again, Oscar shortlist. It's not the kind of thing that we talk about much on this show, but we should because it is so good. Also, footnote, if you enjoy, if you're one of the three people besides me, Mav and Ma, who enjoyed the Vanessa Hudgens Netflix Christmas movies. Vanessa Hudgens also starred in this, which was... Yes, she's very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She is, she's not just very good, she is, she's much, much better. You you may watch the <laughs> Vanessa Hudgens Christmas movies and go, wow, is Vanessa Hudgens an actress? And when you watch Tick, Tick, Boom, you will go, wow, Vanessa Hudgens is an actress, which is a very important distinction. I I also wanted to put Tick, Tick, Boom on my list. It's just such a love letter to theater. And it's... Everything about Lin-Manuel Miranda kind of feels like it comes with like a bit of ego and fanfare. And unless you looked at the credits, I don't feel like you would know that this was a Lin-Manuel Miranda movie because it's not about him and it's not about his <laughs> style. And it like, this is, this is a Hamilton. Jonathan Larson movie. This is a movie about for people who love Rent. And like, mm-hmm. this is not a movie for people who love Hamilton. Like, and that's also a huge distinction. Like one, because they're both sort of like these musicals that sort of allow the audience to redefine what a musical is and are culturally significant in that way. But it was also just like, I I read this article that said that they filmed Tick, Tick, Boom inside Jonathan Larson's actual apartment and that the set decorators used a lot of his personal artifacts when decorating the set for the movie. And you just don't receive that same level of like, I guess like reverence of the understanding of like the gravity and importance of this thing that you are help bringing to life with a lot of other films that just feels like really, really special and different. And, and also just like for those of us who love musical theater, Stephen Sondheim like passed away, like I think right as, as it was coming out. As mm-hmm. it was coming out. Yeah. And he very like movingly, he like he, he Bradley Whitford plays him, but Stephen mm-hmm. Sondheim records the voicemail in the movie. And I, unless I just had a fever dream and made this up, like I read an interview where it was said like Sondheim like actually like helped like 
write and construct that. So yes. it was like deeply yeah. personal. Yeah. Yeah. But Monica, you called it a love letter to theater. That's why Lin-Manuel did this, right? Because it really is just sort of a, this is what every musical theater kid just dreams of is, is the project like this. And that's really what the film's about. It's about this. It's about the idea of chasing your dreams into madness for this, you know, for, 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 I mean, for what's ultimately a dying industry and was a dying industry in 1990. I mean, yes, theater is still alive. I get it. But like, it's a niche arty thing. And that's part of the movie, right? Like a big part of the movie is, do you want to sell out? and you know make money for a living or do you want to be an artist and that's like part of the film and it's so good it is so absolutely excellent and everyone should watch it i also want to talk an oscar shortlist movie i don't think it's gonna win because the movie that i want to talk about is house of gucci okay (laughs) i haven't seen it how is it okay i apparently am in the minority of people who loved house of gucci house of gucci is very mixed like it's not tick tick boom tick tick boom is a much better movie (laughs) but but house of gucci is a fun movie and this is also me coming to you as like i have a very personal bias against jared leto i think jared leto (laughs) is the worst actor on the entire planet Wow. And I did spend most of House of Gucci wishing Jared Leto wasn't in it. But if we let that go, if we put that aside, if we <laughs> pretend that underneath all of those pounds of makeup, Jared Leto really truly is just a different person with a Luigi <laughs> accent. Okay, sure, fine. The rest of the movie is fantastic. And maybe it's because I'm such a like a fashion historian and knowing that a lot of Lady Gaga's costuming is actual Gucci from her own personal archive because Lady Gaga is a very large collector of fashion history. Maybe it's it's the story itself and it's the amount that I have never been more sexually attracted to Adam Driver in my entire life <laughs> and during House of Gucci. Like, I understand all of John Oliver's Adam Driver monologues now. It's, But it's also just like an incredibly fascinating story that to me, I feel like makes you think about luxury fashion differently. And as someone who is always trying to make people think about luxury fashion and the brands that we are actually choosing to consume and associate ourselves with and what it actually means in terms of the history of that brand and what you're buying into. It's an incredibly interesting story that I feel like is worthy of a watch. I I am fascinated by all of this, but I I do have a question, which is I heard that it, it is a fun thing to watch. It says really interesting things, but people would hesitate to describe it as a movie. Is that your take? Or like... The thing about Gucci is I I don't know that it's necessarily saying interesting things on camera. Mm. Uh, and maybe that's why there's so much criticism is that it is a very surface level, like this is what happened and then this is what happened. And then everyone has kind of Russian Italian accents, but like, and, and also like Al Pacino <laughs> makes no effort whatsoever. Like he just speaks in his normal Al Pacino voice the entire rest of the movie, which then makes it incredibly strange for like, everyone else in the scenes with him to be like trying to put on these Italian accents in which to be you're fair, like Al Pacino well, gave up on, on trying 25 years ago and, I'm, I mean, and I adore Pacino but Pacino <laughs> Pacino like Cinema Woman happened and Pacino was done he's like I, that's the best I've got and every and after that which wait, I guess wait, is wait, like 35 years 
you'll pay me this much money just to be myself. All right, forget yeah, acting. Um, yeah, yeah, that's Pacino's. Pacino, Pacino hasn't is tried Italian. since like the Why would he 90s? need the accent? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I'd be curious, Monica, if you like. I wonder if part of the sort of divisive reaction is sort of like I feel like reactions to fashion, particularly high fashion, are also kind of polarizing, and I wonder if that's part of it. I think that's a huge part of it because when we when we talk Gucci, like when we talk the name recognition of Gucci, it is one of, I guess, the most desirable luxury brands right now. Mm -hmm. Also, the thing about Gucci in the 80s, which is not even really gotten into in the film, it's gotten into a little bit because they talk about counterfeit products. But in the 80s, Gucci was licensing their name to over 22,000 products. Wow. So Gucci does not have the same level of exclusivity or prestige that Gucci has now. And so you are selling Gucci the name as the product that it is, which is not what it was in the period film. And they don't do the best job of figuring out how to reconcile those two ideas. I'm convinced to watch this. Well, and yeah, I think we also just need to have a a conversation about like high fashion in general and how it's changed. Mm -hmm. Because I think like the thing that's interesting about this is it's not just it's about Gucci. It's like this is like one of the major things that changed how clothing was is made and consumed in the 21st century. Yes, very specifically that. I will now go off on (laughs) and talk about this for two hours if allowed to proceed. (laughs) Someone else talk about another movie quick. Okay. This is a a big budget movie, but I was surprised by it, which was Free Guy. Okay. I saw the the trailers. I saw the trailers and I thought, this is crap. I'm not going to see this. And then I had like one more movie left before I canceled A-List because I was getting worried about the Delta variant. And I was like, fine, I'll go see Free Guy, whatever. And and Steve from Stranger Things is in it, and it's delightful. Yeah, and it's so a, good. Yeah, and it's a romantic comedy, really. Which, you know, <laughs> I, I'm the person here who loves the romantic comedy. And I love romantic comedies. I'm a sucker. It, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know Katya, this is the one for you to watch because it's explosive. It's a video game movie. It's a video oh, game right. Yeah, no, this is the one you were texting me about. Like, you have to watch yeah. this because it's explosive. Yeah. And I probably it's, forgot because, it's you know, a It's a rom-com set in Grand Theft Auto World. That's what it yes. is. Making it's a so lot good. of assumptions about my relationship to Grand Theft Auto, but continue. Oh, like, no, no, but it, it doesn't, it should, no, I mean, that's just the base world. Like, like yeah. just, just watch it so we can talk about it because, like, I think there's an episode on video game movie adaptations or, like, video game movies and, like, there we is. all agree. We all agree. Only that if we can also start with The Witcher. Fine, I'll watch season two. Maybe I'll understand it more than season one. <laughs> Here, there's a linear time. Not to understand. There's a hot man who kills monsters. That's all. That's the only thing you actually need to know. I'll say, dude, clean. Actually, no, he does not clean up. He dirties up real good. So yeah, I'm not in agreement those, on this. Fact. Th- those are my t- takes on Free Guy and The Witcher. We are done. <laughs> so that's a wrap. Uh, I loved Free Guy, and I think yeah, there's probably we'll, we'll probably talk about Free Guy in the future because it probably is, even though it's not actually a video game adaptation, it might be the best video game adaptation ever made. Yeah. Even though it's not of an actual probably because it's not a video game adaptation because generally speaking they don't they, right. they don't. It, it took it really took hard work. to do well and like the only reason mm-hmm. the witcher works is because it was a novel series first yeah. basically free guy looked at ready player one and was like i'm gonna not we do, can do better yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah like you know low bar literally, but yeah definitely literally, yeah anyway well so what i thought hannah was gonna mention and you know we'll probably do this one quicker because this was all this was the other thing on my list that i said a movie that i assume hannah will mention was barb and 
Star, go to Vista Del Mar. Which I, there's no way anybody else watched this other than Hannah and I. I have never even fucking heard yeah. of this. Yeah. I, I you you have it's office. in the box office game. Yeah. It got, it got moved to Hulu, and like, did anyone else like notice just like as they watch like TV? And and to be fair, when I say this year, I might mean the past like two years of pandemic time or whatever. You know, like it just feels like polyamory is becoming more and more of like a strong alternative to like love triangle. Mm-hmm. And, that and we is, talked about this a little bit when we yeah. had the sex love lit people yeah. on. It's a it's a thing, yes. And so I don't know how to describe Barb and Star. <laughs> I, like, actually, like the comment people made about like House of Gucci, like it's not exactly a movie or something. Like or like I think I think Bar- I mean Barb and Star is a movie, but also it's like, but what if we took the spy genre and the musical genre and the romantic comedy and like the raunchy like comedy and, and like comedy, the five, yeah. yeah and five other things and like she must things give- together. The, okay, the base premise of Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar is there are these two middle-aged Midwestern women. They're probably 40, 45. And they uh, work at a furniture store. The furniture store is going under. So they decide, well, we're losing our jobs. Before we find new jobs, let's just go on vacation. And while on vacation, both end up falling for... The guy I who guess plays you, Christian Grey. Yeah, the guy who plays Christian Grey in the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. But he's the henchman for an evil Bond villain, basically. So he's involved in this plot to like do nefarious deeds, but he ends up falling for this middle-aged woman. And they basically have a quirky, raunchy sex comedy that is just delightful of these two 40-something-year-old women who are realistic instead of... Like, the entire joke of the film is we are not Hollywood gorgeous, like, supermodel types. We're just regular people, but we are sexually liberated women from Minnesota or wherever the hell they're from supposed to be from. It's so good. It's just so... It's quirky and weird and bizarre, but amazing. Yeah, no, no regrets picking it for the box office game. Like, I don't even care that it's scratched. I just picked things. Well, okay, that's not entirely true because I picked Dune and that was boring. Was, I'll get out. <laughs> but I picked a lot of things I thought I'd be interested in and this was one of them. And I, I really think every single person on this show would yes. actually end up being delighted by it in different ways. Yes, um, all of all of you would like it <laughs> for, for different reasons. I agree with Hannah. For, for different reasons, mm-hmm. you'll all be like, oh, wow, that was really good. <laughs> Also, also a rom-com with explosions. So this is a theme. Great. Cool. I can fuck with that. I can fuck with that. <laughs> it's absurd in many ways. It is a oh, yeah. weird, absurdist, and, and weird we, like, movie. And, we, and like, we can't really spoil it for you because you just have to experience it to feel it. Right. There's very obvious I'm, things I'm that intrigued. I'm leaving out. Yeah. Like it got bought by Hulu. So it obviously wasn't going to make any money because it ended up not being in theaters. But this would have been a film where, you know, the 20 people who who saw it loved it and it would have made no money because you can't it's there's not even a way to market this other than like that's just going on a podcast favorite. going please go watch this film that's that's like my, that's like, i have like two i've just learned from this podcast over the years that i have two favorite genres of movies one is that like the movie that, that is that is pointless will make no money but it's just weird and inexplicably delightful and the other one which i already knew about is basically large monster crushes city seriously those are the two kinds of movies I tend to watch. I'm not sure what that says about me in a person. <laughs> so I took a slightly different take on this than we normally do. So we are still living through a global panini. So, and I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is I, like, I don't know about you guys, but I've, it's made me hyper aware of 
my media consumption habits. And I think especially my media consumption habits when I'm stressed. And I can't be the only one because I see this being talked about on social media a lot is the idea that like, oh, one of many people's coping mechanisms when you're stressed because hello, the last two years have been canonically a trash fire of epic proportions, like is that we tend to seek out nostalgia. And so I wouldn't like pulled a few video games that actually I sought back out this year after kind of like having played them before, but kind of like wanting to rediscover them. And the first one I want to talk about, mainly because it's probably the most embarrassing for many gamers, despite being one of the best-selling franchises, I think up until Call of Duty, which is The Sims 4. Okay. Um, I've been playing Sims again on and off, which is now in its fourth edition, on and off for like the last couple of years, because it was one of the first PC games I had as a kid when I was probably 10 years old. And at some point in my like late 20s, I was just like, oh, The Sims 4 is $5. I'm going to relive my childhood. And like, I've been playing it ever since. And like the amount of hours, I hate it when games tell you how many hours you've logged in a game. (laughs) Um, Rather not know. Rather not know. It is nice because you're sort of like, oh, cool. I've gotten my money's worth out of this one. Like, that's nice. You also but, could have um, raised a child, apparently. Yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. Wrote a second dissertation, you know, all, solved all kinds of problems. But, but yeah, I don't know. The Sims has just been very comforting. I was so worried when you said you were going to talk about video games that I wouldn't uh, have anything to contribute. But I also played a lot of Sims 4 during the community. <laughs> yes. Also for the same reason, because it was $5. And that was what I played growing up because I was obsessed with designing all of the little houses yeah you can make houses you can tell weird stories like you it's can nice make a swimming and, like, pool and take away the ladder you know it's all sorts of fun whatever <laughs> you whatever can't your kill fun the sims is. that way anymore though damn they climb out of it without the ladder i know they've 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 limited the possibilities for death but then introduced new ones like the bunny death which yes hannah bunnies you can die by bunny um, we really should talk about psychology in which it allows you to just enact chaos because i was like well, we could raise a cute happy family but that's not fun what if i make sisters and then make them fight over the same man for hours and hours and hours because you're not allowed <laughs> you're to make like polyamory the... the answer in the sense you're not <laughs> not for siblings oh uh, but you are you... in general just not for siblings or are you not yeah at all? there's actually basically okay. a polyamory aspiration huh okay it's not called that for, for non-sims players an aspiration is basically like quest there's like various milestones some of them are more stupid than others but there is one for like i think it's called like it's like some kind of like serial romantic or something like that but basically at the end of it the thing the the bonus you get is that you can have multiple partners who never are jealous which basically is the polyamory cheat code awesome and does your rent go down because that's the real that's the real one (laughs) (laughs) join your household you all pool things and you can technically have roommates so yes you can you it does work that way but yeah no the the sims like so i have five dollars you're saying i should buy this game (laughs) i mean here's the thing this is the problem of the sims this has always been a problem ever since probably like well was this thing the sims 2 at least the sims 3 <sighs> the sims 4 base game is usually like five dollars now i have bought a significant number of the dlcs <laughs> those are not five dollars <laughs> gotcha okay. that's where they get you yeah is the expansions are a little bit more like they start at 20 yeah there's and there's some that are better than worse if you want a short list of the best ones i can i can i can assist you with that math but it's nice and i think like i'm I, it's it's similar to like when we talked about animal crossing when that came out is i think like for animal crossing had a similar thing where it's like cozy game 
game. It's like the opposite of like a stressful like shooter. And it's nostalgia for a lot of people. The Sims in general, the Sims franchise, is one of those things where like, I think in the gaming community, there people gatekeep gaming and sort of like, if you play The Sims, you're not a real gamer. It was one of the original like worldwide phenomenon franchises. There was a, I forget how many years, there were many years where it was the best selling video game franchise ever, which I think is really interesting. I would love to know if, if you're a listener of the show, let us know if you want us to do an episode about The Sims, because we can we can call Cheryl and have her come back, who was our guest on the episode about improv. She used to be a developer for The Sims. She worked on that that's, on, oh, the, on that game. Right. So so we so we should talk about um, like the possibility if people are interested in having us do a whole episode about The Sims. Let us know in the comments. Um, and you should also you know cheap plug go to our blog. If anybody has created a Sims game with us as characters, let us know. <laughs> Good God. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally recreate us in The Sims. You you can't podcast, but you can make a YouTube channel in The Sims. <laughs> but it could make us all like streamers and in this, The Sims. How oh, have I you done that? And I can upload it to the gallery, and then people can download us. Oh, good God! <laughs> oh my God! I might do this now. I might do this now. <laughs> Well, if if Katya has done that since we recorded this episode, though there'll be pictures on the show notes as well. Oh God, <laughs> they're all kind of like on a similar theme of like cozy games that I think are awesome for pandemic times. If you haven't played them before, so The Sims. Also, I would suggest any pretty much anything made by Kyrosoft, but you can often get these actually now on like mobile too. So if you're not a console person, you can. I know you can get them on the Switch. So if you just got a Switch for Christmas, download them. But the one I have on my Switch is called the Sushi Spinnery. It's repetitive. There's nothing deep to say about it. You just run a little sushi place. <laughs> it's very mindless and addicting. All of their games are basically the same. They're like little simulators of like, let's run a mall. You have a farm with cows. You're running a sushi restaurant. They are all meaningless and mindless, but they're really great and very addictive. And like, honestly, well, like for the kinds of like mindless kinds of games that they are, they're like well-made, they're engaging. And I think that's actually really hard to make games that I think aren't sort of narrative or like very complex, like engaging and addictive in that way. So like, if you need, if you need like mindless thumb, thumb clicking, Kyrosoft games, they're great. I would also, if you are a person who's ever played Stardew Valley, since that is a very mainstream title, I would also check out My Time at Portia, which is like the 3D version in many respects. Of, of Stardew Valley with a bunch of extra stuff. And it's just very cozy and cute. And there's bouncy rainbow llamas. And like, <laughs> if you don't want a bouncy rainbow llama in your life, and they they sometimes wear sunglasses, like... By rainbow llamas, are they gay or are they just multicolored? I don't know. I never asked one. It felt kind of rude. Okay, that's fair enough. I, but I, they're very cute. I respect, like, yeah, I respect the llamas, you know, privacy. Sure, okay. Right. <laughs> and honestly, are they llamas? Are they alpacas? I don't know. They're fluffy and they bounce a lot and they're very cute. You do have to murder them for their flesh. No, oh. I don't know. <laughs> Why would you tell us that? No, I guess no, no, I that, 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 was, that was perfect. That was perfect. Oh my god, I was, I was literally about to say I hope they're llamas, not because I greatly prefer llamas to alpacas because, you know, that's a weird thing that I have an actual opinion on, but now that you've told me that, what the fuck, Katya? Why would you Why would you want to play that game? Okay, you don't have to. You could theoretically just put them on your farm and raise them. You just wouldn't get yes. the meat snacks. I'm just saying, god. if you want to get to the game, you got to harvest harvestables. That's how you harvest them. I don't know what to tell you. Okay, let's move on to this horror show. Thank you for that. Thank you for that cozy little game. I just, I don't even, I, I'm making faces and you can't see it. Um, so 
I'm gonna I'm gonna take over now and talk about board <laughs> games because we need some cleansing from that. I'm gonna talk about two board games that did not come out this year, but have brought great joy to mine and my family's life this year, which and they're actually kind of similar in concept and like gameplay mechanics. And they're not gonna be new to anyone who like cares about board games probably, but they might be new to someone who's casual. And they're called Parks and then Wingspan. Parks, like maybe perhaps the title suggests to you, features like the national parks in the US and has really beautiful artwork and you act as hikers um, along a trail and the game plays through four seasons. And you visit parks and and try and win the most points through performing various actions in the game. And Wingspan, you try and attract birds to your wildlife preserve. And in both of these games, the artwork's gorgeous. No one dies, except I think, <laughs> actually, I mean, to be fair, I think some of the predator birds technically eat like tiny birds, but it's not graphic because it's a board game. You just gently tuck your cards behind the uh-huh. predatory bird. And and they let your bird like play standard. Mm. That You do not murder anyone. It's just the circle of life. But you know, like these games like have like some like things. And harvesting the llama is not the circle of life. No. No. <laughs> no. no. I'm no. gonna be shunned out of the podcast now. Bye. <laughs> this is my last episode. But, but there's but it's beautiful artwork conservation. And I learned a lot about birds through playing Wingspan. I learned a lot about the parks that I like wasn't as familiar with by playing parks and have like some places I want to go now if the pandemic ever ends. Pretty sure Wingspan, at least, and maybe parks, we discussed on uh episode 161, describing 20 board games that we haven't played, yeah. which was a game yeah. that Hannah has played. I think we talked about Yeah, I, I did make you talk about them. And like one nice thing about both Parks and Wingspan is that there is a single player mode. So if you're alone, these are like not board games that you need multiple people to play. There, There is like a game version that you can play and you can just look at pretty birds or pretty parks and enjoy your time. Yeah, I, I like them a lot. I think it's it's like sort of a nice, you know, divergence from let me take all your money to board games. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Usually music is a big thing for me. I don't have as much this year as I, I usually do. I joked earlier about how I monologue about it because I'm the only one that, that does this. Usually every year there's the band that like, oh, this is the one thing that grabbed me this year that I can't stop listening to. Mm-hmm. And I didn't this year. I thought I had. Band out of Los Angeles uh, had a regimen called the Glam Skanks. They they opened for a nationwide tour for Adamant. They broke up. Two of the members formed a new band called Retra. Uh, new singer, new drummer. Released two songs on SoundCloud, I think. And just sort of that, that early 70s glam sound that I like. Very T-Rex, very The Sweet, that kind of stuff. Like, I really dug these two songs. Looking forward to an album. A couple of YouTube videos of them playing small clubs in LA. Like, oh, I, yeah, Yes, this is going to be my band this year. And then the the bass player and the singer left, and they broke <laughs> up, and they don't. So, 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 so their entire discography is two songs. Two two songs, yes, yeah, and, okay. and, and a couple of, <laughs> couple of live clips on on YouTube. So yes, yeah, so, so it's something that everybody missed and will continue to miss. But, but which, no, the, you got to look at it positively. You know, it's really hard when usually the recommendations like you know, have you gotten into Prince? Have you gotten into yeah, Bowie? Well, have you, you gotten start? into Mozart? Where where do you start? You know, there's you know this this person requires it for 30 years he's got 300 <laughs> songs no 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 this guy you can you can you can you can absorb the entire catalog in like very, seven minutes yeah very quickly yep <laughs> yeah. and, and there are two two really fun 
songs, the the guitarist, who seemed to be the driving force of it anyway, the guitarist and the drummer have already announced a new project, but we don't have anything from them yet. So, okay. but yeah, so so there's that. The other thing, <laughs> the other thing, and I'm going to mention this, and I'm going to bring things down for a moment. But this this is a music thing. This is a band that people have missed for 40 years. I'm only bringing it up. There's a band called the Jazz Butcher, started in the 80s, British band that I've been into forever. Love the Jazz Butcher. Nobody's heard of the Jazz Butcher. He only has like 13, 14 albums, something like that. But I say he, the Jazz Butcher was essentially a single person the name of Pat Fish and whatever random group of musicians he had gathered together into a session recording people, studio. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not not just session people, but you know, people who were definitely part of the Jazz Butcher for this album. You know, they would okay, work gotcha. and whatever. There's one other a guitarist by the name of Max Eider who was essential in the early part of his career and then he went and did other things, and then he came back to the later part of, of the Jazz Butcher. <laughs> I only bring this up because Pat Fish, who was the Jazz Butcher, passed away and yes. just completely suddenly in September. And I recall I, you mentioning this, yes. Yeah, and, and it's one of those like weird connections with my whole life. I discovered the Jazz Butcher in like 1986 when I was in grad school, just small random band when I'm living in an apartment with other guys. 1986 is also the year that I'm reading Watchmen. Well, it turns out Watchmen, written by Alan Moore, Alan Moore was friends with Pat Fish because they both were from Northampton and Alan Moore used to ride around in Pat Fish's tour van with him. So these two things I discovered completely independently in 1986 and didn't know had any connection did. Years later, when I read Alan Moore's Magnum Opus Jerusalem and reviewed it so no one else would have to, somewhere about three quarters of the way through that book, he mentions riding around in a van with Pat Fish and the Jazz Butcher. Like, oh, okay, that's an actual reference to your life and something you actually did. That's cool. I posted the the review online and Pat Fish, who I had since friended on Facebook, commented on it. So there's just this weird little meta level of, oh, two things from 30 years ago in my life that I didn't know were connected just got reconnected on my Facebook page in 2019 or whatever. So, so that was it. Anyway, this is just, this is a recommendation of everybody missed uh, the Jazz Butcher in, in 2021 because most people missed the Jazz Butcher every year since 1980. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's, it's a real mix of some of it's it's fun. His stuff can be funny. There are places where he almost feels like he could be a novelty act, but he pulls back from the brink of that by doing just some really gorgeous, heartfelt ballads and love songs and, and whatever. So just check out The Jazz Butcher. There's a lot of stuff out there. Fun music. Uh, pay tribute to this really, really overlooked mu- musician who I think put out a lot of really, really good material over the years. Oh. Music's hard. I mean, there's stuff still happening, but there's yeah. less of it. But, but even before the pandemic happened, like music was already in this transitional phase as we're moving mm-hmm. more streaming world to where yeah. albums really just like well, I don't I, know how much longer albums are going to be a thing at all right well, like and, you and talk the, about and, two songs well why yeah. not yeah, well, the oh, last... yeah I, I have one more music thing okay, but, but, just, just because this is unlikely for me this is like Hannah talking about Kesha I, I discovered this little known artist by the name of Miley Cyrus this year and, and to be fair like obviously I've been aware of Miley Cyrus but I just simply never paid attention not the demographic they're aiming for you know I was aware of the controversy but never really listened Mm-hmm. So one of my old customers at the store, a kid who grew up in the store, he was like 16 when I met him. He's now 38 or whatever. <laughs> he has a really broadly wide musical taste. He posted something about really digging the new Miley Cyrus album. Like, wow, you're a kid. Okay, let me listen to that. I've listened to that album more than most anything else this year. Just, I, I don't know. It clicked for me. Her voice, I, completely unexpected revelation for me. So there you go. Go listen to the new Miley Cyrus album, Plastic are you, Bangs. Are you, are you rediscovering old? 
Hannah Montana stuff as well. I, you, I just, out of curiosity, I went back and listened to a Hannah Montana album. Just, just, and it, it's her voice. It's sort of a different <laughs> style, but it, it's her voice. But like, okay, I need Not some, con- I need some context here. I, you know, I, I'm enough of a music fan that I'm loving this. I need some context. So. <laughs> Since we've we've kind of gotten a little abstract with the with the theme, and this isn't so much media or content, but it's it's more of an event that I wanted us to talk about, and it's, mm-hmm. it's actually the death of Virgil Abloh, which is a, a little depressing. It, it's not a COVID death. He had a very private battle with cancer. For people who don't know who Virgil Abloh is, he was the creative director for Louis Vuitton. He was mm-hmm. the creator of Off-White. He was the first person of African descent to be the creative director of Louis Vuitton. So, it, And Virgil Abloh was really seen as sort of this like modern pioneer of the contemporary like streetwear era which has really sort of revolutionized we talked a little bit earlier about logos and commentary on logo but sort of a a more modern critique of logos within the fashion industry Mm -hmm. and I suppose it sort of hit my level of awareness more than others because I also spent a lot of time researching Willie Smith the the Mm -hmm. designer this year. And Willie Smith had a museum exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt in New York City that closed in October. But there's a lot of parallels between Willie Smith, the designer, and Virgil Abloh, the designer. So if I'm to maybe throw a bit of homework at the listeners, it's that for me, the clothes are much less important than the man and the design philosophy and the idea of the, the artist and the creative process. So I know that Willie Smith Street Couture had a really, really awesome public oral history archive that's available online where a lot of people who worked with Willie submitted their stories. There's also an exhibition catalog for the museum exhibit itself, but a lot of the oral history website is in conjunction with the catalogs. So you don't necessarily need to have uh, bought the catalog or have lived in New York City or have gone to the exhibit to have an uh, appreciation or understanding of the legacy that Willie Smith left, and especially the way that Virgil Abloh sort of directly, I guess, responded to Willie Smith's legacy. So maybe that I would just throw, read a Wikipedia page, uh, look, at, <laughs> look at Virgil Abloh. Um, a runway show, read an interview. Like these are really important designers. And a lot of times designers sort of get hidden behind the clothes mm-hmm. that they make. And I think it's really important to think about the fact that there are people who are designing these things and they're not just designing them for consumption. Like that's that's obviously a big part of it. And that's the thing that funds their ability to be artists, but they are still at their core artists who have something to say. And both of them, like everything else, linked in the show notes. So definitely yes. check out some some of the stuff. I have a bunch of books and I have one that I want to start with that I I it's a weird recommendation. In fact, I, I recently, as as we record, wrote a book review for this in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette is assigned to me by a friend of the show, uh, Tony Norman. There's a book called Read Until You Understand by a woman named Farrah Griffin. It is amazing. Read Until You Understand is a book of literary criticism, which 
which means it is going to be read by nerds exactly like me um, and, you know, us, actually, I should say on, on this show. But it is a book of literary criticism that is trying to be accessible to regular people. And, and in fact, what she does is she relates her literary criticism, which is mostly exploration of African-American literature over the last 250 years through the lens of looking at this as a female academic scholar and looking at it through the lens of being, she's a grown woman now, but being a little girl who misses her father. Farrah Griffin's father died suddenly when she was eight or nine years old. And among the few things that he left her was these books of like biographies of black leaders. And he would leave notes to her in the margins where he was just, he was going through, and he's not a scholar. He's just a guy who's just very into the civil rights movement at the time and fighting for, you know, for equality and also just educating himself. She opens the book talking about how important education was to her father. And then she talks about the notes that he left in the margins to these books where he's basically like, Farrah, you're not going to understand this book. Read it until you understand. And and he basically explains to her, she's too young to understand what she's going to read. And it's a very complicated book and it doesn't matter. You should keep trying. You should keep trying to understand. And that's the only way to understand culture and that's the only way to understand history. And she uses this, you know, as a way of sort of understanding the complicated man her father was. She talks about how he was very much a revolutionary trying to work with the Black Panthers. And yet he also has a heroin problem. And she talks about it quite frankly. And it's really, really good. And it's just, it's the book that I've been recommending to everybody. And I like, like my review of it says, you're probably not going to like this at the beginning. I don't care. Read it anyway. Read it until you understand it. It's so good. So that's my recommendation for everyone. Nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that definitely sounds interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I know I brought it up on our, our pop uh, history episode that we did earlier this year, but I've been really trying to read more. So mm -hmm. always appreciate a book record. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I read a lot this year. I, I was going back through my list of things I've read and there wasn't like, much like music, there wasn't, here's the book this year. You know, last year, Hannah had turned me on to Utopia Avenue and it was like, oh my God, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I was looking back through and nothing stands out a whole lot. Probably one of my favorite books this year was uh, The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, which is uh, written by Anna, the wife of Jesus. Hmm. So it is very much the story of that era of the Bible and the Jesus story told very much you know, like historical historical fiction written by a woman that he would have been married to. And mm -hmm. this isn't uh, Last Temptation of Christ with the, oh, what if? Mm -hmm. This is written very much like he was a 30-year-old Jewish man for him not to have been married would have been weird. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of, she just kind of introduces it like yeah, he got married, he had a wife. It just she she got lost in the history, and this is her story. It was really well done. You not very religious, but just as historical fiction, as a different take on that time, at a look at the origins of Christianity, but within the context of a very Jewish society and how that all would have been perceived. Uh, it, it, I, I'm not even quite sure why this left out at me as something I wanted to read, but it was probably the most surprising book of this year in terms of how much I liked it. The two other things that I do want to mention, just much like uh, Utopia Avenue, and maybe this is an episode, I don't know. This seems to have become a genre 
of here's a band and their adventures. Hmm. I read two, I read two this year that were and nowhere near as good as Utopia Avenue, but one called Bootleg Stardust and one called Wilding Hall. And Wilding Hall in particular, there was a book a couple of years ago, Daisy Jones and the Six, that did the same thing. It's told in that format of here are excerpts from interviews of all the prime players, and we've strung them together to create a narrative. And it's like this has become a genre in telling the stories of fictional bands, and it's, it's a, a technique that's used in, in real band history. There's a famous book called Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil, who was one of the founders. He published a magazine in New York in the 1970s called Punk, which is one of the places that that term came from. And that's debatable as the first usage of that term, but that's a whole other thing. Please Kill Me is excerpts from magazine interviews and personal tapes and personal interviews of all the people who were there. Sometimes it's just a, a sentence. Sometimes it's a couple of pages, but just strung together chronologically, building the story of what happened in the punk scene in New York in the 1970s. And as a history, it's amazing. And there's unreliable narrators. Everybody's telling it from their own point of view. You get different takes on the same story. as you a broader picture and you realize that the real history and truth is somewhere amongst all these stories. But you know, that that's an actual thing. But I've like Daisy Jones and the Six was told this way. Wilding Hall was told this way. Like, okay, that book, and I'm not even sure that Please Kill Me is the first book that did that, but it's it's the one that comes to mind. I'm just kind of fascinated that that has become a model for fiction now. I even want to bring up Six, the musical, because that's mm-hmm. framed in which it's a story, a, a sort of like feminist refocusing on Henry VIII's wives. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they yeah, are I... a pop girl group. So yeah. it, it still yeah. also has that same structure. And the theme is also that same level of history is really who is telling the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. those are pretty much the only only books that I, I feel worth mentioning. And Bootleg Stardust, I, like, I'd forgotten. Like, it was all right. I don't remember a lot about it. I'm not really recommending it other than it's in that category. Of, oh, look at Wayne reading books about bands. So <clears throat> it's funny that you mentioned Utopia Avenue because, you know, I'm super basic. So David Mitchell's one of my favorites. Right. And, and after that, I went right. back and pretty much read everything he did. So that's the other stuff yeah. I read this year. Yeah, I... Like, he's he's one of my favorites. And, like, I think grad school really took a lot out of me when it came to, like, reading for fun because I love Utopia Avenue, but I, like, struggled to get started and keep myself reading. And I want to talk about Sylvia Marino-Garcia because at the beginning of 2020, I read Mexican Gothic, which... Oh, um, yes. I read that this year. Yeah. (laughs) I read that when I had COVID. (laughs) we, we We need to have an episode because it's so good, you guys. And we need to talk about it i love it so much and it it just it's it's the perfect blend of like understanding the gothic genre and like critiquing it like i couldn't put it down and like that's the first time i couldn't put a book down and i couldn't tell you how long and actually today i i received for christmas her new book um, that was published in 2021, which is Velvet Was the Night. And it's a mm. noir novel and takes place in um, the early 70s in Mexico um, during the like Mexican War. And I I thought about each and every one of you as I read this novel, partially probably because we were doing this show tonight, but also because one of the main characters reads comics and fantasizes about her life through like the genre of comics. Whenever the, she talked about her clothes, I thought about fashion 
I thought about Pulp Fiction and I, I just, I, I also could not put this down. Like within two hours, I had read a hundred pages and just her writing is beautiful. Also, it's very real and has gotten me interested in learning much more about Mexican history and like, it just really understands the genre. Also, I texted Katya this amazing passage that really just has captured my feelings <laughs> about life. And like the main character is 30. And so it begins, she couldn't be graying yet. She couldn't possibly be 30. She didn't know where her 20s had gone. gone. She could not recall what she'd done in that time. She couldn't name a single worthy accomplishment. And I was like, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, also, I'm interested to see if this novel blows up because I feel like that sentiment, the, the thing I was thinking when you sent me that was like, that is a sentiment I'm hearing from a lot of people just because like, we've all kind of stagnated in one way or another now. Speaking as the yeah. elder on the show, I think that's just being 30. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like people are yeah. having to recognize it in a different way people are having like this yeah. this like very i mean I think like the great resignation is kind of like a symptom of it although yeah. a lot mm -hmm. of that is actually boomers it's a lot yeah. of but, right well like people in terms of people departing the workforce that's like over 90 percent boomers yeah but mm -hmm. regardless i think like people are i think why that sentiment was just like oh this feels like very 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 now as they say in the sense of like oh people are having to like like a covid kind of like stagnated things for a lot of thing a lot of people but i think also because we had a lot of time to reflect everyone's thinking about like well what have i accomplished and is that the thing that i want to accomplish mm -hmm. and like you're seeing tons I, of people like pivot their lives in one way or another yeah. Um, and, yeah and you're right as a cultural moment yeah you're absolutely right i i do find that interesting though how we approach these things at different ages in our life and i've probably mentioned this on the show before the book steppenwolf you know hesser wrote that when he was 50 years old and mm -hmm. part of that was oh my god i'm 50 i've done nothing with my life what the hell is wrong you know all this stuff and kind of rediscovering a certain joy in life and i first read that when i was 25 years old and at the time I thought, oh my God, this speaks to everything I'm feeling right now. And I read it again when I was 40 and thought, oh my God, this speaks to everything I'm feeling right now. And I had the same experience when I turned 50. And I'm sure I was responding to different parts of it because when I was 25, I certainly couldn't relate to the being 50 part of it. Right, right. But that sort of universality of some of these feelings is, yep. is something I find fascinating in any of the arts. You know, that, mm -hmm. that's part mm -hmm. of what make them work. So, but, but thank you to Marina Garcia for giving me back like yeah. <laughs> a lot Mexican, of reading and Mexican Gothic was definitely my top five of the year yeah the other books that I want to mention I, I, I mentioned the Courtney Milan novel last year but this one I just want to say The Devil Comes Courting was super cool because it featured megalodons and the telegraph so was super into it highly recommend also Courtney Milan's great on Twitter and as a non-fiction <laughs> book I want to mention that Maryam Kaba released her writings in a collection um, called we do this till we free us and sometime in the past 10 years her thinking has changed my entire viewpoint on life about abolition so like it's a really great collection i i cannot i cannot express like how she has like shaped my thinking and i obviously still have so much to learn but if you've ever heard us talk about like the police or prisons a lot of what i brought to that has come from reading her so if you want to think more deeply about like, some of the issues that like plagued us in 2020 and before and continuing now just like a really wonderful collection of writings and interviews and stuff yeah so i i read things this year <laughs> <laughs> well i have an actual novel like a like a regular book because yeah. i'm because read until you understand very much 
much memoir and academic criticism. Mm. So this is the exact opposite of this. I use Goodreads to keep track of stuff a lot. And like, I just allowed to post to Facebook with my notes that whatever I type in as my note to myself on Goodreads, I allowed that to be in the Facebook post. And I posted this and I got exactly one like on the Facebook post, which because it was exactly one, one like, Monica now knows it was her. <laughs> so I read this Called book. out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I read this book called Such a Fun Age by uh, Kylie Reed. It's a novel, which if I could retitle that book, and I'm going to not give away a lot of stuff because it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a mystery to it, but I would call it The Failures of White Feminism, the novel. <laughs> <laughs> the the base premise of this book is it takes place in 2015, 2016, because the woman is working for the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. And the premise is there's this 30 something year old white professional woman. She's an author and she has hired a 25 year old black woman as like sort of the, the babysitter nanny for her two children. And on Halloween night, some people vandalize her house. So her and her husband call their babysitter and it's like, we're calling the cops, but we don't want our older daughter. The older daughter is like four, three or four years old and they've got an infant. We don't want Briar is the little girl's name to be in the house when the cops come here. So if you're not too busy, can you come over and just take her somewhere so that, you know, she's not around when the police are taking the report. So the babysitter comes over and takes the little girl and they go and they hang out at a grocery store. And while she's grocery shopping, they get accosted by, for lack of a better term, Karen <laughs> at the at the grocery <laughs> store. They get accosted by a random woman who's like, well, are you supposed to be with that white girl? And and she's like, yes, I'm her nanny and I'm taking care of her. Leave us alone. So then the customer calls the security guard and the security guard takes the other customer side and they try to separate the four year old from her babysitter. So they end up having to call the, the husband and wife and the husband rushes down and says, no, this is the first chapter of the book is just this incident happens. And then the rest of the book is about the chaos that this throws everybody's life into the the 25 year old she's she's black she's working for a white family and so the white family wants to do everything they can particularly the mother she just wants to make a big stink of this and this is horrible how could they do this to my babysitter the 25 year old's boyfriend is also a white guy and he's like well you should sue you should do this and you should do this and the entire book is essentially about the war between the boyfriend and the mother over how this woman should handle this thing that happened to her with no one really asking her how she feels about it and and taking her side and it's like it's it's sort of trying to do everybody in the book is what you would call woke and trying to do the best by this woman without ever actually considering the real her now as a criticism of the book she never really speaks up like she doesn't take control for herself she's wishy-washy to the point to where it's an obvious character flaw and you're like oh okay she really should have said something there but that's because if she ever did speak up for herself then the book couldn't happen like so there's a right, narrative yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a narrative conceit in order for some disagreements to happen in the course of the book but it's really good it's not it's not the best book i've read in forever like i did when i was when i spoke about the vanishing half last year but it's very good and i definitely recommend cool i read the vanishing half this year based on your 
recommendation last year. And yes, that was really good. Yeah, best book I've read in decades. Yeah, graphic novels. Graphic novels. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was the same thing. I'm not in the comic shop, so I don't see as many graphic novels. So I feel like I'm missing out some of the more obscure kind of things. I, I, I'm going to skip over. I, I mentioned you in the store last week. Like the new Nightwing series is really good, but it's Nightwing. It's DC. I don't know how many people are missing it. Mm -hmm. The other one I want to mention. This was actually I discovered this through Chris Cavallo's blog. Chris is a friend of the show. A book called Mr. Invincible, Local Hero. Actually came out in 2017. I believe it's a, yeah, it's a French book. Mr. Invincible is just an amazing deconstruction of comic storytelling. It, it's very cartoonish. Mr. Invincible's powers is, aside from being aware he's a cartoon character, he is able to traverse the comic book page from any direction. He can move from one panel to the panel below him or above him or next to him. So we get these stories of him interacting with himself. And it, I, it this is so hard to describe. It, it kind of destroys the reading order of any given comic. You, pro you progress through them in a natural comics reading form, but that is compromised by his ability to move in different directions than the, the, the recognized reading order. So he will be in the first panel and he will spot something in the panel below him going on and make arrangements to make that happen in the next three panels across from him. There are other characters. There's a another superhero who plays with perspective because you know perspective it's all flat on a piece of paper so he'll be standing there and you see a building in the background that he's able to just pick up between his fingers because he doesn't see the perspective that the reader does and, and able to take that with him somewhere else and put it down as a small house there's a, a villain who is also able to traverse panels but not on the page but on backing pages so you will see him stick his head through a panel on a facing page you turn the panel and he's coming through the corresponding panel on the back of that page. Just as someone who studies comics and comic storytelling, and the creator's name is Pascal Jocelyn, which I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation. <laughs> it is just an absolutely, it, it's thoroughly entertaining. I mean, it, it's clever. What he does with stuff is thoroughly entertaining and funny. So just on that level, it's amazing. But the deconstruction of comic storytelling tropes and what you can do is just one of the more amazing things I've seen done in comics in a long, long time. So anybody who is interested in that comic storytelling and the form and what you can do with it, this is just a, a masterclass in breaking the rules and doing really, really cool stuff. So so that, that's my big one. I say there's some other stuff I read that I liked, but this is the one that stood out to me. It's like, oh my God, this this is amazing. I only have one standout comic. This is weird because we, you'd think there'd be a bunch on the show. I don't know if anybody else has one, but my one is, well, actually I'll, I'll do two. I'll do them together because they're really sort of the same thing. And I think you should read them together. The Black Panther Party, which is a documentary comic. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a history of the Black Panther Party. That's all it is. I don't know that documentary comics sell well, like even, even Wayne, when you were mm. working at the store, the audience for them well, is typically you and me, right? Yeah. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the other thing that, the other thing I was going to mention is there's a, a comics biography of the musician Leonard Cohen. Oh, look, yeah. Wayne reading graphic novels about musicians. And, and, and yeah, you know, I saw that advertised like, well, they're going to sell two copies, one to me. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Black Panther Party, and it's another one where I wrote a book review for the paper for it. And it is just, it is a history of the Black Panther Party, which is extremely sort of relevant in the Black Lives Matter movement moment. Because I don't think a lot of people, it's a lot of stuff I knew, but I don't think a lot of people do know. And also along with that, a couple months after that came out, Run, the final book by John Lewis, 
Oh Congress yeah, John Lewis died, I, and um, I have not read that yet. That, that's, it's that's on I my mean, list. I enjoyed it, but it's it's the fourth chapter of March is what it is. I mean, yeah. it's exactly it's more continuing right. that story. So, but what makes it interesting is Run and the Black Panther Party book cover a lot of the same era and time, and looking at them from two perspectives because Lewis had a lot of a lot of negative feelings about Stokely Carmichael, who is one of the main Black Panthers, who is very much a positive figure in the Black Panther Party book. Black Panther Party book in a particular if you don't know a lot about it, it's a very important group, very complicated history about a lot of people who you won't feel good about. You, you'll, you might be on their side intellectually, but there's a lot of negative things that happen in that book. So I would recommend both. All right. So I think that I'm going to, I'm going to bring this up again because I think that it should be required watching for everyone on this podcast because it's about podcasts and I'm talking about only murders, only murders in the building. In the building. Yeah. And, and you knew I was going to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I assume. It is delightful. Speaking of former Disney stars, Selena Gomez stars alongside Martin Short and Steve Martin. Martin. Yeah, she's the third amigo. The third amigo has been, Chevy Chase has been replaced with with Selena Gomez. Yes. And (laughs) And it's fine. It's it's delightful. (laughs) It's intergenerational friendship. Like, like mystery. Non-creepy. Yeah, yeah. Non-creepy. Lots of mystery references. Like twists, but solvable mystery. Amy Ryan, who you might know as Holly from The Office, is also a regular there's a cat although it's not super happy but it's kind of funny it's just delightful and then the last four episodes just move at just a big pace that like i couldn't like put it down and i had work the next day and i was like well guess i'm staying up to 11 (laughs) (laughs) it makes me sound super old it's it's been on my list since you first mentioned it and i just forget so i i'm i'm glad of the reminders yeah i'm just i'm just a podcast host standing in front of my other podcast (laughs) asking them to watch it which also takes me I guess to my second show in a very roundabout way which is again everybody should watch Ted Lasso I thought it had a terrible premise I thought I'd hate it but it's delightful it's wonderful and in fact I got a Ted Lasso themed candle that smells super good for Christmas and that is also delightful so like the beginning of the show so like Ted is like a football coach and by football I mean American football hired to coach a British football slash soccer team and the owner of the team is trying to destroy it but as a revenge for her ex-husband being a dick because rich men are evil and ted <laughs> partially wins her over by bringing her biscuits so that and he calls it biscuits with the boss and so the candle is called biscuits with the boss and it smells like cookies but like not in a terrible way like i i was like concerned about like what a sugar cookie kind of candle would smell like but it's actually really nice and i love it and it's pink hmm. anyway that's more about the candle than show but it's a delightful show i'm totally everyone everyone i know who watches it loves it i've not yeah. watched it yet it's it's a thing that i'm like oh, yeah i'll get to this and yeah that's where i am <laughs> I, I partially love it so much because there are two like major female characters on the show and the depth of the writing for them really surprised me and juno temple and hannah waddingham are just fantastically talented and it's just great and also like i kind of assumed that ted would be a terrible character because everything Jason Sudeikis has like played that I've seen him in has been just like this terrible kind of creepy predatory guy or at least not someone who would appear on like you know am I the asshole subreddit but no he's delightful in this <laughs> it's, he's like he's like the opposite of all of those toxic men he plays and everything else it's it's just really good and I want to talk about it and technically I think the third season is gonna maybe going to be it was planned to be the final season 
and it's supposed to premiere this year. So we need to do an episode about it, you guys, because this is like a thing that's big that we're missing <laughs> out on. Anyway. <laughs> and we've we've avoided talking for the entire episode where and we will continue. We're not talking Spider-Man spoilers because Hannah hasn't seen it. But as a non-spoiler, Danny Rojas on Ted Lasso is in Spider-Man. <laughs> it doesn't do anything for you because it doesn't do anything for you because you know spoilers, but just you can look forward to that. <laughs> he has amazing hair. Anyway. <laughs> I have I have one TV show that I really wanted to talk about, but it's not even because I'm not a fan of the show. And in fact, that maybe I'll, I might go and watch the show more because it's only on one episode. The season premiere, because the commercials for it looked so good, and I was like, I just want to watch this. The season premiere of a show called The United States of Owl. So The United States of Owl is about a guy who comes home from serving overseas in Afghanistan, and he is, you know, having trouble reintegrating with the society, with the American society. He and his wife are estranged, but he, he's trying to raise his daughter with his, you know, his father's helping, his, his sister's helping. He's got a daughter that he's co-parenting with. I don't think they're divorced. I think it's his separated wife and they live down the street. And also living with him is Al, who is his interpreter from, he's an Afghani man who's just moved to America with him. And the basic premise of the show is Al is really trying to help his friend get back together with his ex-wife. That's the show. You don't need to know any of that because I looked all that up on Wikipedia. That's just the backstory from season one. Season two opens with all the main characters are watching the little girl at her, at a karate tournament when they get a text about the fall of Kabul and they're terrified because again this takes place in America it takes place in like Cleveland or something but they're terrified because Al's sister and family still live there and Al's sister works for the UN as an interpreter as well just like Al had and they're terrified about you know trying to get her out of Kabul and to America or somewhere that is just not where as a woman who worked with the United States of America over the last 20 years that she might be killed. And that's what the episode's about. It is, it's, there's funny bits, but it is 30 minutes of intense human drama. Just, you know, everybody is bringing their A game. And I know nothing about any of these characters because I'd never watched the show before, but it's 30 minutes of these people trying to, everybody's trying to win an Emmy. And it's just really good. It's just mm -hmm. really excellent trying to like match into current events. So it's a show that if you're not going to watch the entire show, because I've not watched any more of it, but I might at some point just because you know everybody won me over but i recommend watching that one episode on hulu because <laughs> that's what i did so there's a show that i want to talk about mm -hmm. that is that is not serious and is not trying to win an emmy and yet mm -hmm. somehow got nominated for a lot of fucking emmys and that's emily in paris <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I not, exactly. I'm not necessarily saying that we should watch it but i am saying that we should discuss the weird cultural phenomenon that everyone has attached themselves to in watching Emily in Paris because nothing about it is good. It's like <laughs> it's like the Clue Junior version of Sex in the City. Like <laughs> you not like it, so you don't like it. You're saying you're 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 anti this. It's. <sighs> Okay, I've seen all of it because I've okay. also watched all of OG and new Gossip Girl during the pandemic because we have established that Monica's tastes are already <laughs> garbage. But there's just something about like, it's. I'm pretty sure it's made by MTV Studios. Like, yeah, I would believe so. The entire thing basically exists for some version of what is she wearing? It's not funny. <laughs> 
And yet everyone is watching it. And it has become the same way that Gossip Girl was this like phenomenon that then every fashion magazine was like, we should show plaid skirts and headbands. That is what Emily in Paris is for fashion trends and also Instagram and and it's kind of everything that's wrong with Instagram right now in a TV show because it's about an American marketing executive living in Paris and none of it is realistic and I'm pretty guaranteed that I'm the only one who decided to melt their brain by watching this. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of other people are melting their brain watching Emily in Paris and maybe this is just more of a question for the listeners of I don't get it. Why am I still watching it can someone please explain it to me so it's a thing it's a thing we missed is what you're saying it's a a thing that we missed it's probably a thing that everyone should have missed and yet it got nominated for a lot of emmys that it didn't Mm -hmm. deserve (laughs) yeah emily in paris cracks me up well okay along those same lines so this goes all the way back to movies and here's an odd one that i made myself watch most of and then quit because this is a, i I'm, i rarely will give up on anything i am not a horror movie fan listeners will know that i'm not a horror movie fan i've talked about this before so i was hesitant at first but it was getting a lot of buzz it's getting oscar buzz and it's probably going to be if not nominated for you know general awards i imagine it's going to be nominated for international picture titan you know it was actually one of those that was too hard to get into when we were at Cannes that i did not okay. get to see it but i have heard uh, of it and i have yeah. read the synopsis and i know all of the things yeah and it was it, it was okay so so if, you're, if, if, if you see the if you see the trailer you're going to look at the trailer or you're going to look at the poster even you don't need to watch the trailer if you just look at the movie poster you're going to look at it and you're going to go is this about a woman who wants to fuck a car <laughs> That's what you're going to ask yourself. It's a horror movie and like it's a sexy woman laying on the hood of a car and you're like, oh, it's clearly it's a horror movie that takes place at an auto show. It's about a woman who has a titanium plate implanted in her head from an accident as a child, you know, kind of tragic and it becomes a horror movie. And and it's about a woman who's trying to fuck a car. That's what this film's about. <laughs> and, and, so, so it I is. Mean, it is what you think it is. Yes. And okay. I mean, I got to I like a lot of weird artsy stuff. And and so I, I wanted to give it a shot and I and I was in for a while and and again it's a horror movie which i'm not terribly into and i sort of like watching it i i get where they're going for uh, like i i get what the filmmaker wants you to think i'm like monica i don't understand why everybody else likes and i don't mean everybody i mean it's like it's doing really really well for a foreign film about a woman trying to fuck a car and <laughs> so like if you've seen titan just tell me why i, I want to know <laughs> like what what is it that people enjoy about this thing i i expect we're going to be talking about it again come Oscar time it's a it's a lot it's a, it's a it's a lot even for me so that was my my weird one where I'm like no one else I, I thought there was a possibility Monica might have tried to see it at Cannes when you went but I was like nobody tried to sit through this but me and I tapped out I mean I I now I made it a good hour in and I've still got I've still I mean I bought it so I can watch the rest of it but <laughs> I was like that's enough so, so we resolved, resolved nothing, nothing. <laughs> we have resolved 
a list of things to check out if you're bored and considering <laughs> Omicron is a thing, we all will yeah. be. You made it through all like eight hours of this episode. I'm assuming you're bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can listen to it on double speed. It's fine. <laughs> Just, they're you all know, linked to the show, review I mean, the show notes. Yeah, it's, and they're all linked in the show notes. I think there are things yeah. that you should check out. There are things that I want on the list. Yo, is, yeah, oh, totally. Well, and yeah. that's it. Yeah, I mean, every year you guys make suggestions of things like, mm-hmm. oh, I hey, what do you know? I missed that. Yeah, and, and I, I kind of wonder, what do you think of these shows? Because we don't get a lot of comments on these shows, but to me, these are the most interesting shows we do because I'm like, here's stuff for me to do. You know, like, yeah, right. like it's exciting for me <laughs> from people whose opinions I trust about things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and I always discover something through you guys, so that that's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Well, this was it. It's the first show of the year, but you know, behind the scenes, it's the last show of the year for us, but it's the first show people are hearing. So thank you to all the listeners for joining us. Thank you to the four of you. Like I, I love this every week and we've talked about it a lot, but you know, pandemic time keeps me saying a lot. Monica, thanks for joining us and being on the show, you know, because this yeah. is your first no, year. So it's yeah. been great is, having you around. No yeah. exaggeration. The best thing that happened to me this year. I'm it really is the the thing that I look forward to every week. It's the reason I dare to check text messages on my phone anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm yeah, this, very this show, and, and you've you've brought a lot to the show. So mm-hmm. this just kind of goes on a continuous text stream <laughs> at all times for us. So, but I love you guys. I love doing the show with you. So thank you once again, as always, for doing we're, the we're show. Coming up, we're us. coming up on our fourth year, aren't we? Like, yeah, we are. Like, uh, we Marshall are. Will be four years. We will finish four years. Holy, yeah. yeah. This is this is episode one ninety five, and this has been great. I mean, in between, I mean, it's weird because like this show and my other show, you know, are uh, both of them are like I don't I, why anybody would want to listen to me talk about this <laughs> weird stuff every week. But like I, I am so thankful to you know have them as forums of just people of listeners who are interested in the things we have to say. So thank you guys, and thank you guys for listening at home. So yeah, happy new here <laughs> yes. Yay! we made so, it yeah in closing mm-hmm. i guess i've already can plug their stuff even though i know you guys are all gonna do the thing yeah we don't every have time where you yeah. never plug anything yeah, at this but point monica marvelous where can people find you <laughs> you guys can find me on instagram or on twitter on instagram it's gonna be uh l-o-u-s and on twitter it's gonna be l-o-u-x monica marvelous i have just finally accepted that they will always be different and i will never <laughs> receive a cohesive <laughs> hand Palindrome, Hannah. We can't even find her here. You, you, you can find me next week on this show, <laughs> where I will have a stomach ache over a fantasy box office because of <laughs> the pandemic, not because of anything in particular, except there's a pandemic. Also, yeah, next week's the box office show. It's my other favorite show of the year. So if you, it, it is I, one of the episodes where we do have to account for the pandemic now, though. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely check us out. Yeah, if you look on the blog, you can see we are looking for suggestions as to what movies we should draft. We will see who won the box office game. And Monica, this is your first chance to play. So I hope you're you're planning up. Boy, no pressure. <laughs> and Katya, where can people find you? Here. 
It's pretty much it at this point. I hate to break it to you. Sorry, guys. And apparently, uh, maybe on the Sims gallery, if I make the Vox Popcast crew as Sims. <laughs> Probably won't happen by Monday, but if it does happen, I will update someone somewhere. <laughs> and Wayne. Uh, uh, yeah, same thing. I, I haven't updated anything in forever. Yeah, I, I finally fell off my photo a day thing just because of life events and not getting out taking new pictures. So I, I, I want to get back to it, but I fell off that as well. So Okay, and, and Kathy, you should know better. It is so hard to edit the end of the show when you guys do that. <laughs> it's just here. So. <laughs> 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 I hate you all, <laughs> but I love you anyway. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where you can find out what we're talking about next week. It's the box office game. You can leave us comments on this show or any other show. You can pitch yourself as a guest or pitch ideas to us or tell us, you know, you know what you think we should be talking about in the world of pop culture. If you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do then please subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever else you get podcasts from and do us a favor leave us a five-star review if you leave us a five-star review especially on itunes apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm makes us more popular helps other people find the show so that other people do not miss us in 2022 because you know you know then they'll miss out on great content like this i mean this was great right you know, what else did you have to do for the last, I'm going to say, hour and a half after editing? I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you once again for listening. I'd like to thank my co-stars for joining me on this crazy journey. And we'll see you next time. Happy New Year. Bye. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.